The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. This is Michael Drake, Chancellor at the University of California, Irvine. And whenever I get the urge to hear the voice of independent music, I tune in to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine or over the web at KUCI.org. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI. This is Ask a Leader, and I am your host. And with you every Tuesday, 9 until 10, today we're going to look at Valentine's Day in two very heady ways and find a coherent theme between the two. That's right. First, with UCI's classics, Professor Zina Gianopoulou, who will talk about Plato's construct of love with a discussion of his symposium. Then, in the second half, we'll hear from a midwife here in Orange County, Dr. B.J. Schnell, educator and practitioner of midwifery, midwifery, founder and owner of Beach Cities Midwifery and Women's Healthcare. We'll be right back and put you on a higher plane after this station break. My first guest here on Ask a Leader is Professor Zina Gianopoulou, who is a classic scholar here at UC Irvine since 2005 with interests in Greek philosophy and especially Plato and the reception of classical Greek and Latin texts in contemporary literature and film. She is also interested in epic poetry and tragedy. She's currently working on a book about Socrates entitled Theotetus, Theotetus, correct? Dialogues of Knowledge, coming out in the Oxford Press. Welcome to the show, Zina Gianopoulou. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here, Claudia. Thanks. Well, we're glad to have you making special this Valentine's Day. Given that this, in fact, is Valentine's Day, let's, let's just jump right into this classical piece by Plato known as Symposium. Uh, in Greek, this word means drink fest, or these, that's the cultural context, and that's what's going on with these thinkers assembled in the forum, correct, Zina? That is correct, yes. Actually, the word symposium means drinking together, and it is indeed a drinking, a drinking party where uh, food and is served and heavy drinking is taking place, but after all of that, we have people talking with each other. Um, at this particular occasion, we have um, six speakers. Um, and then we have um, a seventh guest um, who comes in at the end to crush the party, as it were. Um, um, so altogether, there's seven participants, and each one of them uh, gives a speech um, in praise of eros, which is the Greek word for romantic love. And tell us, eros has a very special genealogy that I, I didn't learn about till preparing for this show. That is right, yes. Uh, Eros is the son of uh, poverty. Uh, Penia is the Greek word, and that is his mother. And resourcefulness, or poros, um, who is his father. 
Um, so he's the offspring of, you might say, uh, the minus and the plus. Uh, uh, someone who overflows with stuff and someone who has nothing. And so the two get together, and what they produce is love, romantic love. Um, I want to make a distinction, if you don't mind. Um, Please do. Between uh, three terms that I think people may be familiar with. Um, the Greeks, well, when they talk about eros, they talk about romantic love, they talk about sexual love. And they distinguish that from friendship, um, which um, the Greek word for which is philia, and of course then there's the later word agape, the Christian word agape, agape uh, reserved for charitable love. So um, it's important that uh, when we talk about eros, right, we don't just think about love in general. We're talking about sexual union, sexual love. Very, very good. I'm glad you make that distinction so we can um, keep deepening our understanding, because I know your students get to do this in your seminars and your lectures, but we're, it's a special treat to bring this to my listeners today, especially on Valentine's Day. So, um, as gods go, then Eros is a pretty old one, and uh, as you said, born of poverty and resourcefulness. Now, tell us about this notion of desire that they talk about, and we can start, I guess, with, I guess, the main contributor in Symposium before before we hear the big Socrates rollout, the main contributor is Aristophanes, who comes in with a, it's kind of funny, but um, he's he's trying to set up, and it's a bit of a myth, it's a bit of a satire in his voice, but he makes distinctions between the desires between men and men, men and women, and uh, both uh, uh, the hermaphroditic sort of um, curse of sorts. Can you break down each of those kinds and what Aristophanes has to say in this do you want me to talk a little bit before that about uh, desire and what, how desire, um, yes. what the function of desire is? Yes. Please. And then we can move on to Aristophanes. So, um, yes, um, when, according to uh, Diotima, we're going to talk about her in a little bit. Indeed. Because she's the main voice uh, in the symposium, and Socrates, as it were, tells us what Diotima uh, instructed him about love. So according to, to Diotima and Plato, I guess, she's voicing, or at least we think she's voicing Plato's views, um, when someone loves, there is something or someone he wants, he or she wants. Um, and therefore, something or someone he or she needs and lacks. So desire, then, is a motivator. Okay? So its uh -huh. role is to move us to do something to obtain what we need, and thus to be full of it, and no longer need to obtain that thing. But then once we have attained it, right, we don't stop desiring the thing that we have obtained, because then the desire is to have that thing forever. So there, there are like two phases here. Before we obtain something, we don't have it, we lack it, we need it, and desire moves us to get it. Once we obtain it, then desire, the desire is of that thing to be ours forever. So that's sort of the, the, the map of that. Um, then, yes, Aristophanes' speech, uh, actually he's giving, um, he's giving a myth of, uh, of Plato, and he's telling us that according to the myth that he's offering, human beings were originally of three sexes. There was the female sex, the male sex, and the male-female, or female-male, um, or as you say, hermaphrodites. And we were spherical, 
the original human beings, you might say, uh, the primordial humans, were spherical and had twice as many limbs and organs as we have today. So you can imagine that these humans were very powerful and threatened the gods at some point, and then the gods decided to split them in half. So according to Aristophanes, we are sort of fallen creatures, as it were, because we uh, have been split. We used to be one with our other half, and the gods split us into two. And now what we do is, just to go back to what I just said, we lack our other half, and we need to be connected with it. So we spend our life, according to Aristophanes, searching for that half of the same original nature with whom to spend the rest of our life. So if we come from the male combo, we're looking for our male half, the female combo for the female half, and then male slash female, you know, accordingly. So the myth sort of legitimates homosexual love, which is very important. This is supposed to be one of the main contributions of the myth uh, to our notion of love and what it is. Yes. But... Um, the, the thing with Aristophanes is that love, right, is, is for him the desire to find our other original half. Okay. And so love is an effort to overcome the, burdenous, the burdens of separation. Right? So we're separated, we are distinct, we long to be whole. So we're longing for wholeness, for com- completion, which we don't have. Mm-hmm. And so each one of us is going around looking for a particular person that with whom once upon a time we used to be one. And so uh, for those uh, listeners who've just joined us, we're talking with Professor Zina Giannopoulos. Uh, Giannopoulos, sorry, I put that as the end. Uh, a classic scholar here at UC Irvine talking about Plato's discussion of love and his work symposium, the, the voice uh, Aristophanes. And so is Aristophanes, does he work as a sort of a platform for Plato to go into his deeper, uh, more intellectual uh, sort of uh, rendering of the, of Socrates' uh, speech, his right. soliloquy in the symposium, Drinkfest? That's right, yes. At some point, um, actually, uh, Hephaestus uh, says to these creatures who are going around looking for their other half, he says, what do you really desire? There is a very uh, nice line there yes. in the speech of Aristophanes. And this is supposed to propel Diotima's speech, right, who is going to come in and then enlighten us what it is that we truly desire, uh, which is not what Aristophanes has said, right? And we're going to sort of talk a little bit about the differences between Diotima's view, which is supposed to be the Socratic, Platonic view, and then Aristophanes' view to see exactly what kind of progress we have uh, here. Um, so... Who is Diotima? Just a little bit about, yes. about this woman. Um, she is the uh, female voice in the symposium. The symposium was an all-male gathering. Uh, um, and that Diotima um, is absent. Uh, Socrates is ven- ventriloquizing her. Uh, he's importing her voice into the symposium. She was Socrates' teacher. Uh, and according to what Socrates says, it's sort of a kind of a... a bossy kind of person who uh, puts him down and says, oh, Socrates, come on, wake up, you don't know anything, listen to me so that you learn. And so she instructs him um, 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 what love is. Um, and, and, and her instruction is brought into the dialogue by, by Socrates. 
Um, so what does Diotima say? Um, she makes a number of points. Um, first of all, the idea that Eros is wanting to possess the good forever, that is Diotima's view. So she's importing into the discussion the idea of the good. Um, and she's making beauty the kind of um, the, the, the medium that makes the acquisition of the good possible. In other words, um, because we are aroused by beauty, by physical beauty, most people, maybe psychic beauty or spiritual beauty, other people, we use beauty, as it were, in order to give birth to the good, in order to engender the good, get hold of the good, apprehend the good. So beauty is, one might say, the vehicle uh, that in which uh, we sort of, we are, we drive this car, and the idea is that we are reaching for the good. So Diotima's the notion and the platonic idea is that Eros is wanting to possess the good forever, not beauty forever, but the good, and these are not one and the same thing. And the, um, and the good be- is about, because uh, we're, we're not going to get to spend as much time as we like, but the good has everything to do with immortality, and there's so many levels of immortality that all um, uh, attainments, different attainments of desire are, are working through. Right. I mean, you're probably talking about the, the, the ascent, the famous yes. ladder, right? The famous ladder, and that is actually the contribution, the main contribution of the speech, the famous ascent to beauty or the, the scala amoris, the, 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 the ladder of love. And according then to Diotima, that's right, there are, we're supposed to be ascending. So in our life, we begin on the first rung of the ladder, um, and on that first rung, we love one body. And in doing, in doing so, we beget children, sort of, I don't know, real children, human children. Um, then the second rung is when we generalize, when we recognize that there are many other beautiful bodies and there's nothing uh, 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 speci- uh, ex- exquisitely beautiful about the one that we, um, on which we bestow our attention, say. Mm-hmm. So on the second rung, the lover becomes a lover of all beautiful bodies. The third rung is when we turn our attention to the beauty of the soul, um, and we recognize that the beauty of the soul is superior to the beauty of the body. The fourth rung is when we turn our attention to beauty of practices and laws. From there, we move up to uh, types of knowledge. And then the final rung, and this is going to be very strange to most people who do not know uh, Platonic metaphysics and Platonic philosophy, is when Plato says, okay, on the last rung, rung of the ladder, we love beauty itself. And mm. he capitalized that be there. Um, and that beauty, right, is sort of, what makes all beautiful things around us in this world beautiful? Beauty, beauty and all of its abstractions. Correct. It's, it's, it, I don't want to call it a universal because the platonic forms or the platonic ideas are actually real things. They are not sort of abstractions. They're not like the Aristotelian universals. Uh, but what matters is that, and that's sort of the crazy idea that many people mm. do not really understand about Plato. It's like, what do you mean beauty, capital B, is real? I don't get it. But that's for another occasion. What, what is important is that 
we know that these things around us are beautiful, right? We come to understand that they are beautiful because we have some kind of intuitive, I guess, understanding of what beauty, capital B, is. So we understand that they are all beautiful because they participate in that beauty, which is over and above them, you might say. So as we go up the ladder, right, the idea is that we move from corporeal things, right? And that's a procreation, corporeal type of of, uh, attainment of immortality is a uh, a parent a mother who was is trying to procreate to propagate herself to propagate her immortality that level and then the soul how that what procreation of the soul means in terms of one's civic uh, intercourse right so when a lover falls in love with a beloved right and there's always a lover and a beloved in, in a platonic union um, the idea is that if this is a good relationship and not a garden variety, ordinary, <laughs> sexual kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, then what happens is that the lover falls in love with the beloved because of the beloved's psychic beauty, right? There is something very beautiful about the beloved, and so the lover is attracted to him. He desires that beauty. So what happens is that they, quote-unquote, make love, not physical love, but they get together and then the lover, who is the pregnant one, and this is very important, yes. the lover is pregnant, not the beloved. Okay? Okay. So the lover gives birth to ideas, to thoughts, in discussions that he has, during discussions that he has with the beloved. So the beloved provides, as it were, himself, provides the beauty of his soul as the vehicle in which these ideas in which the, the lover is capable of begetting, birthing the ideas with which his own soul teems. And is that where also Eros is a bit of a, a, a pun in terms of, you, you can tell us the Greek uh, word roof that um, desire there in love uh, is, all, is, very anal- is very close alliterative with the Greek word for educate. Right. Uh, and right. that's what's I happening mean, with yes, that level. There, there's a cluster of Greek words. I mean, the, 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 the Greek word for desire is epithymia. Uh, then we have for education is pe- pedagogo. So there's a kind of, uh, yeah, there's, I suppose, a kind of... Um, uh, 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 or is it communicate? Okay. But, but, but what is important is, yes, that in both physical um, uh, erotic, physical erotic unions, I suppose, and in educational psychic unions, what we want is to um, um, engender uh, human offspring or uh, brain children ideas <laughs> and uh, make them continue uh, even after we're dead. Uh, so, right, you might say they continue our legacy. We leave something behind us. We leave behind children. We leave behind ideas. When we educate our, our, uh, our students at school, right, the idea is that we transmit to them, right, we give to them ideas that we have in ourselves, and then they pick them up, they do something else with them, they pass them on in a chain right, that goes on forever. And that is the idea of immortality on the psychic level. And so I, when you talk about this attainment of beauty itself at that so-called sixth step in the, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the, the steps of love, is um, it does remind me, and I don't know if Greek, you Greek scholars do invoke the concept of nirvana when you do talk about that step, or is it 
is it remote? Is it not it's thought of? A, well, one might say, well, we don't actually do that, but I can very well see someone, you know, who is interested in Buddhism, um, in Asian philosophy, to think of it as something similar. I mean, I can read to you very briefly in like a minute, if I have a minute. Oh, I do want to hear this, and I think our listeners, of course, do too. It is a very beautiful passage, actually, from the symposium, um, and it's actually it's describing the experience this of, is near the end of Socrates' uh, component. Right, of, of, of actually seeing beauty, capital B, right? What, what does it feel like? And then I think we're getting closer to the nirvana you were talking about, and I think your, your listeners will have the same um, experience. So Diotima, through Socrates, says, the result is that he, the lover who's made it right to, the, to that rung, yeah. will see the beauty of knowledge and be looking mainly not at beauty in a single example, as a servant would, who favored the beauty of a little boy or a man or a single custom, but the lover is turned to the great sea of beauty, and gazing upon this, he gives birth to many gloriously beautiful ideas and theories in unstinting love of wisdom, until, having grown and been strengthened there, he catches sight of such knowledge, and it is the knowledge of such beauty, and then the text breaks down. There is ellipsis. So... You know, notice the difference, and then, and this is this is something important between Aristophanes' speech, uh, in which emphasis is on a particular beloved. So we're looking for our other half. It's very discreet. That's a particular person. Aristophanes is very discreet and right. ab- about what what will uh, um, sort of epitomize meeting the goal uh, versus the much more uh, expansive form exactly. that uh, uh, that Socrates is talking exactly. about. Oh, it's, it is very, very beautiful. And just one more reminder for those of you that are listening uh, on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live to you on www.kuci.org. My guest is Gina. Zina! I'm sorry, Zina, I'm doing this to you. Zina Giannopoulou. She's a classic scholar here at UC Irvine talking about Plato's discussion of love in his work symposium. And uh, we, we don't have much time left, but we uh, want to acknowledge that you are, not only is your book going to be coming, out as when is it um uh, projected to be uh, this, coming, this coming year in this year sometime yeah. 2012 and uh although Zena is not uh teaching a course this particular winter quarter she will have um opportunities if people want to pop in and audit or something mm-hmm. she'll be teaching classical myths an introductory course i guess and that's casts of a hundred uh, hundreds in uh, your um, enrollment there and you'll be teaching a segment at of the humanities core here at UCI that's uh, from May 15th through June 4th so uh, folks can come in and listen to you expand more on some of these really heady Greek themes that uh, we don't any of us get enough of a chance to to attend to but uh, I I also understand from what we've talked about in preparing for this program that your students actually they get this deeper dimension and it's been a pause for them to uh, reconsider their own relationships and the other larger meanings of desire in their life. Can you just maybe say a little anecdote about that, if you'd like? Yes, uh, and- I had one student uh, uh, when I taught uh, a course on Plato and Love uh, last quarter, um, who uh, a very nice person who, um, you know, as I was um, giving them, talking about uh, the Aristophanes speech, uh, she actually said, she was nodding, she kept nodding, and I said, 
oh, you, you seem to be getting this. And he said, yes, yes, uh, I have found my other half. I mean, this relationship with this guy, and uh, I know we're meant to be together, and I know that uh, he's the one for me because, you know, we parted for a while and we couldn't, you know, keep uh, uh, away from one another, and now we're reunited, and I know th- this is uh, it's he is the man for me. And I said, well, I'm very glad. And then at the end of the quarter, you know, she, uh, she came to class and she was all uh, very upset and sad and she looked like she cried a lot. And I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, you know, we split up. And I said, oh, my God, what happened? Uh-oh, they're the, and, the half. And she said, well, he wasn't, after all, you know, what, uh, what I thought he was. And having taken this course um, enlightened me about what it is that I should be looking um, in, uh, in, in a partner, what, what it is that um, love is all about and, and the meaning of love. And so I realized that he was the wrong person. And so, and so I, kept, I kept feeling bad for her, and I said, I'm sorry. And she goes, no, no, I'm glad I took this course. I uh, learned something. I said, yes. I'm great. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> wow. So there, that, that, that is uh, the process that continues since the classics and uh, in contemporary settings. So um, I, I, since I am going to have a midwife uh, speak uh, to us in the second half of the show. I just want to make sure we take away from this discussion today the important role that uh, is is beauty the midwife or Diotima? Um, Dio she's the mid. Let's just codify exactly this midwife role in the symposium experience. Yeah, no, I don't know that Diotima is the midwife. I mean, the idea is that. Um, I suppose the um, the extraction, if you will, of the brainchild is really done by the lover, right? Sort of the well, the the lover is the one who's teeming with ideas, and then he's getting together with the beloved, and then somehow through this things come out of him, right? So he gives birth, and there's no intermediary in the symposium that assists, say, Socrates or whoever has this idea. Socrates is usually not uh, not wise, so he wouldn't be the lover, uh, I suppose. Uh, but whoever is the philosopher, the, the philosopher who teams with ideas, that is the person who is giving birth. So there is no midwife in the symposium, no. Oh, okay. But there is a midwife. There a midwi- is a midwife in the in the Theaetetus, in in other dialogues. Um, well, in the Theaetetus, to be precise, there is a midwife, and in fact, the midwife is Socrates, um, who is assisting uh, now his interlocutor to give birth to ideas. Right? You see, Socrates is not one character only. I mean, his persona changes from dialogue to dialogue, so he becomes a midwife, but in another dialogue, not in the symposium. Not in this one. Okay, but we will we will come and bring it up with the other one. So I. I I thank you for setting aside your valuable time to be with us to to bring Valentine's Day to a higher plane. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Zena, for being on, uh, giving more meaning to this mother of all Hallmark card calendar days. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. So we'll be back in a bit when we can um, bring uh, to the topic uh, another, as I said, uh, the uh, message here. in the continuum here from we'll hear from BJ Schnell, educator and practitioner of midwifery and founder and owner of the Beach Cities Midwifery and Women's Healthcare in the second half of the show. So don't go away, Valentines. We have uh, more special programming for you today. So stay with us, please. Funny, 
sweet convict valentine you make me smile with my heart welcome back to ask a leader my guest in this half of the show is dr B.J. Snell, and I want to go over her entire background so that everybody gets just how much a midwife puts in uh, in the way of uh, training and credentials. Dr. B.J. Snell, professor and coordinator of the Women's Healthcare Concentration in the School of Nursing at Cal State University, Fullerton. She's directing the midwifery and women's healthcare practitioner specialties there. Her extensive training includes a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Master's of Science in Nursing and Women's Health Nurse Practitioner from the University of Colorado, Denver, and a Doctorate in Nursing and Nurse Midwifery Certification from the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. She's recognized nationally as a fellow in the American College of Nurse Midwives. In addition to her teaching, she's active in clinical practice as owner and clinical director of Beach Cities Midwifery and Women's Healthcare. I'll give you more information about that in a bit. Uh, this is a private midwifery, midwifery practice founded in 2000. With the closure of the only hospital that allowed midwives to practice in South Orange County, Dr. Snell created the Beachside Birth Center in Laguna Hills in 2009. That's just three short years ago, folks. In October of 2011, Dr. Snell expanded the midwifery practice to Long Beach, where there's been a limited access to midwifery care and natural birth. As you will hear shortly, she is a strong advocate for women's health issues and has worked to decrease barriers to midwifery care and improve access to safe pregnancy and childbirth care. Dr. Snell, who has overseen the birthing of over 3,200 babies in her career, comes to us today on Valentine's Day from Fullerton. Welcome to Ask a Leader, B.J. Snell. Thank you so much. It's nice to be with you. Well, we are glad to have this Valentine's Day time with you. Um, and although the uh, midwifery, as you say, is and others uh, say that it's the second oldest profession, tell <laughs> us, will you, about the resurgence of interest in this practice and how our society can understand that midwifery is what it is and how it's been, why it's not been out there, how long it's been out there available and doing. Well, I certainly think that there's been a, a huge resurgence in in the understanding of the child-bearing um, families, young couples, that um, we have, uh, we believe in this country that, and have practiced, that childbirth is a disease and needs to be very medicalized in order to have a, a safe uh, pregnancy and birth. And I think midwifery has had that resurgence because there is recognition that, in fact, pregnancy and childbirth in 90% of women is not a complicated issue and it's not a disease. And certainly the philosophy of midwifery is to work with the woman, to provide that support for the woman and her partner, um, and be able to keep them healthy and therefore have um, a normal um, childbirth. 
and be able to integrate that baby into their family. Certainly in the current medical model, there is a lot of controls that are put on the woman um, during pregnancy as well as birth that are unnecessary and certainly have been shown to be unnecessary interventions that lead to other interventions causing problems. So I think that's why there's been a resurgence in midwifery. People are recognizing that the current model of care in the United States is to be very interventive in a process that is really a natural transition of life. And you've talked to me in preparation for this program mm-hmm. a, a very important role in how uh, that what might have become an a higher risk uh, proposition, a higher risk outcome, and therefore a more complicated delivery, the collaborative work, the educational work, the the, the form as we talked about in midwifery in the, er, the earlier half of this show, that there is a, a, a this collaboration begets earlier on health maintenance of that pregnancy. Can you talk to us about how that can translate. Like you, we talked a little bit sure. about gestational diabetes may not be a factor because mm-hmm. you begin early on in the pregnancy talking about the important maintenance. Right. Well, I think, again, one of the things that is that distinguishes midwifery care from traditional medical care is that we spend more time with our, our woman and or couple family in their prenatal care to um, educate them, to encourage that partnership and that collaboration where we can advise as well as determine what practices, what lifestyles um, the woman has and, and advise on ways that are going to keep them healthy and improve their, their outcomes, improve their ability to have a normal pregnancy and therefore a um, normal transition to this family. Um, in, the, in the visits that we do, especially in our practice, we spend a half hour each visit with a woman. And I think one of the things that has been um, characterized in the traditional um, care practices um, in this country is that the woman generally sees her provider maybe for five minutes during those those visits, and that really doesn't allow for a time to discuss things and to really follow up. Um, there's a lot of fragmentation of that care that can occur. So in, in the midwifery model, we really work to um, incorporate those educational opportunities and you know, we're not only educating the woman, but she's educating us, because if we listen to what she says, and I think that's a mantra for midwifery, we listen Uh to women. If we listen to what she says, we can then determine um, um, ways to help her improve her health and maintain as well as improve and prevent some things such as gestational diabetes or high blood pressure, those kinds of things. Because as we were talking about before, that uh, we don't know about the gestational diabetic condition until the third trimester where the mm-hmm. fetus has already done a great deal of formulation. But uh, if you're talking uh, and back and forth, maybe you pick up in that educational uh, back and forth in the earlier, uh, I don't, what, we don't call them OB visits. What do you call them? Well, we do call them OB visits. Okay, because it's still upstairs. I think that it's, uh, 
it, obstetrics is just a general term okay. for a woman that is pregnant. So in the early OB visits, you're talking about diet then and not later when people say, okay, you've got to work about right. your, your sugar equivalent. So it's Right. And the, it's not just diet. It's exercise. It really is lifestyle um, issues. And um, we, we deal with not only diet and what is a healthy diet based on that woman's individual need, because the diet descriptions and suggestions we will give to someone who is of normal weight will be different from someone who is underweight and different from someone who is overweight. In addition to just focusing on diet, um, we also focus on exercise and stress management. And all of those things are, are critical to the management of a healthy um, pregnancy environment for the fetus to grow. For those of you who are just tuning in, my guest is B.J. Snell, educator and practitioner of midwifery, founder and owner of Beach Cities Midwifery at um, and Women's Healthcare, located in Laguna Hills here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live to you at KUCI.org. And we're talking about uh, the essential we'll call it the interactive quality of the OB visit with the the midwife and the patient, and it's bringing down complications and costs. We, um, there's lots of ways to go from there, but I guess I want us to understand when we talk about cost, the difference between the hospital delivery and the mid, uh, the birth center delivery. Um, That's a great question. I think, again, as women are recognizing that so much intervention really does impact the initial health of their baby and potentially the long-term health, they are looking towards um, more alternatives for how to um, have their care during their pregnancy for their prenatal visits as well as as to be with them for their birth. And natural childbirth um, really is a term that has been used since the middle of the last century um, and and was really focused on, well, you need to take these classes in, in order to have natural childbirth. What we really know is that if you can have an unmedicated birth, you have lower interventions that are are um, used, and therefore you are going to have lower costs, not only in um, psychosocial kinds of costs, but incorporating the family and making sure that stress level is down, as well as real economic costs. As an example, um, the average cost, if you look at national statistics, and certainly California um, is... It's pretty representative. uh, Well... A little bit representative, but our costs here in California are generally a little bit more than the national average, just because the cost of living in California, if you look across the board, is but in terms a little bit higher. But proportionality. But if you look at national data, um, a to have a normal—I shouldn't say normal—just a regular vaginal delivery in a hospital. A standard. The average cost of the hospital is going to be about seven thousand dollars. Okay. Um, for a birth center the cost is about $2,000. Again, the biggest difference is that in a woman who is healthy and has an uncomplicated history and pregnancy, et cetera, there are not the needs to do the unnecessary procedures that have shown from an evidence perspective, if you look at the research, they have never been shown to be uh, beneficial 
to a woman in labor and, in fact, may be harmful. Maybe As putting... an example, uh-huh. women are told when they're in labor that they can't have anything to eat or drink. Now, I will tell you, labor is like running a marathon. And no one is going to tell a woman that's running a marathon that they can't have something to drink to help replenish those stores. But women are are told that they can't have anything but ice chips. But they're given an IV, and the IV does nothing to to provide nutrition for them. Oh, really? It gives them a little bit of saline solution to keep them hydrated. When a woman can hydrate herself just fine by drinking. So there are lots of unnecessary procedures that can go on, like giving an IV instead of just allowing a woman to drink. Well, what's the rationale for uh, using an IV versus uh, drinking to hydrate one's body during labor? Well, the rationale um, from, again, many, many years past was that if a woman had a full stomach, if, in fact, she had to have surgery, that it could put her at risk during the surgery. That was back in the era when we were doing general anesthesia. We rarely do general anesthesia anymore. And so the risks, even if the woman needs to have surgery, are extremely low. And where it doesn't make sense is if you have a woman that's been at home laboring and she's been eating and drinking as she has felt comfortable and she comes in to have her baby and let's say something is necessary for her to have a cesarean section Uh relatively quickly, that woman has a full stomach and she has... She has consistently, the the outcomes still remain very good um, because we're not using general anesthesia anymore. Okay. Versus the woman that comes in and may have a 16-hour labor, and she's told all she can have is ice chips. Okay. You can't run a marathon on ice chips. (laughs) No, I've never seen that done, nor do I care to. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what we do um, as midwives is we try and support the woman um, and be able to provide for her and remind her to do things like eat and drink. Most women in, in labor, when they're really in that good part of labor, are not going to be eating solids most of the time. They're going to be drinking, though, and you want them to drink to keep them hydrated and to keep their energy up. And you talk about the, the uh, value of having the, the mother being mobile in the birth center, uh, that she is uh, upright, she is um, uh, not strapped to a... I mean, you talked a little bit about the kind of the high-wire act of that uh, fetal monitor there. Right. Um, We don't do continuous fetal monitoring um, in the birth center. That's the operative word, not continuous, so that people know that you've got your safety net, but you're not on heightened alert and controlling. We are monitoring that baby. Um, but we are not, we don't have the mother strapped into a monitor that, that's continuous where she has to be in bed. Um, and allowing the mother to be in the position that she's going to be the most comfortable in, we know that she will labor and birth her baby the vast majority of the time. But the midwife, the other thing I think that is unique about midwifery care from our traditional medical model is that when a woman comes into labor, um, the midwife comes in with her, and we are with her for her entire labor whether her labor's two hours or 24 hours. And it's usually somewhere in between there. Right. But we are there with her. We're not seeing patients in our office or are at home asleep and allowing someone else to manage them that may not have the same level of expertise as the midwife. So I think that's another very, very important component of midwifery care, that continuity of care in labor where it's you're not just episodically walking in and just doing an evaluation and not looking at the whole picture. 
That's stunning in that the difference and and how much a dip, that difference makes in the outcome, not in financial, psychological, and a social, cultural, and all of that. And I, and I think that savings is a, a wonderful way to talk about how the Affordable Health Care Act is codifying mm-hmm. midwifery. And um, and I'm, when we do that, I also want to give lip service to how you've uh, witnessed a, a change, a transition of the relationship of the uh, the medical practice uh, in uh, working with midwifery. So if you could first talk about what the Affordable Health Care Act is doing to incorporate more of the midwife. Well, I think so, what the Affordable Care Act is doing is allowing an increase in, um, you know, recognizing that women's health care needs have been a um, problem in our current health care system across the board. But certainly in the um, pregnancy and um, childbirth arena, have recognized how much cost that we have engendered from the current model that we use. And there's a lot of of discussion that goes on about what are the unnecessary procedures and why are we using them? And is it for someone's convenience, but it's really not something that is necessary for care. And certainly in the midwifery model, we have found that in low-risk women, now I'm not talking about high-risk women, that's a whole different picture, but in 90% of the women that become pregnant and are are having babies, 90% of them are healthy, don't have any risk factors, and don't need, um, you know, that level of technology that has been supplanted on them unnecessarily Mm -hmm. and actually can get them into more trouble. Um, We have a cesarean section rate of 35% nationally. The World Health Organization says a healthy society should not have a C-section rate of over 15%. So let's do that comparison then, um, that over 30%, and you said in uh, Orange County or California, no, in Orange Mm -hmm. County, the average is even up around 40%. It can be, depending on the hospital. Yes, if you look at the data hospital by hospital and take all total C-sections, it's it's higher. Um, Now, our practice, we have about a... About a five to eight percent cesarean section rate. Wow. We can't we can't guarantee a woman when they come into our practice that they would not have a C-section, um, but we can tell them that we do everything we can to to prevent an unnecessary cesarean section. And I think that 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 is again one of the things that's very very important and and that you see in the difference in midwifery versus traditional medical model. And I think maybe your numbers are what they are, too, because isn't there probably some uh, natural selection? Someone who's going to opt to go to a midwife may have a different array of of, uh, health maintenance um, considerations than the, the general public would. I think that that is a um, uh, very common held belief, and I think that, in fact, in many instances it is. However, there there's a whole range of things. Number one, some women feel, as many of us as human beings do, that, okay, it'll never happen to me, and I'm going to get into shape, and I'm going to get where I need to be before I ever get pregnant. Well, 50% of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. Doesn't necessarily mean they're unwanted, right? But they're unintended, meaning they get pregnant not at their optimal timing, so to speak. Correct. So many women come to us and say, "Okay, now I'm here and I'm pregnant. I want to know how to really help myself so that I have a good 
a good outcome. We see that. The other is if you look at the national data, um, as far as midwives are concerned, midwives are exceptionally good with more socially risked patients, meaning adolescents. Oh, really? Uh huh. Women that have socioeconomic, um, maybe lower socioeconomic, that don't have a lot of resources. And again, the reason is that we spend more time with them during their prenatal visits. Okay. We educate them. We look for those resources. We know where those resources are to get them connected. You're their so red that tent. They have a support group. Yes. As well as have the midwife to mm-hmm. help them. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful uh, added consideration. I, I'm glad we can cover yeah, that today. Well, I know there's lots more to say. I want for the <laughs> listeners to know that more information is available by contacting uh, B.J. Snell's uh, practices website. I'm happy to do that, and it'll be in the podcast summary, too. And that would be uh, getting in touch with it's beachcitiesmidwifery.com, as well as reaching the American College of Nurse Midwives at www dot midwife dot org and so uh well as i said be sure to put that in the summary bj i thank you so much for uh, joining us today on valentine's day and enlightening us on a, a, an enlightened choice uh, in the days of, of of doing better with increasingly less and we didn't even get a chance to say how much uh, cuba outperforms let's just quickly sneak that in there how cuba outperforms the united states in terms of right, well, and then we got to go mortality data which is something that has become is becoming more and more of an issue worldwide um the united states now is below cuba as far as um maternal mortality. In other words, we have a higher maternal mortality rate, meaning women die with ch- in, in a childbirth-related instance. Um, we have more of that than Cuba. We are way down the line as far as other developed countries are concerned. And the so. indicator that has been been looked at for that, that has the most influence on that, is the, is the um, cesarean section rate. Okay. Maternal mortality goes up with increasing cesarean section rates and we have such a high c-section rate in this country that so, that's why we're seeing it and that's what we all we have a lot on in control here if we're going to pay attention to some of these wonderful choices and that's why i want to bring to you the inestimable dr bj snell today uh professor and coordinator of this women's health care at uh, cal state fullerton as well as the founder of the practice there as i said at beach cities midwifery so i thank you uh, for being with us today have a lovely v-day and uh We'll stay tuned. Thanks a lot. Thank you as well. And so I want to, just before I hand this over to Mr. George Rosales, want to thank you listeners for joining me today and hope that you had as much good a time as I did. And I want just to post very quickly that the V-Day monologues presented at the Orange Coast College Repertory Theater going on till next Sunday will state the feminist monologues in observance of V-Day, a movement to fight violence against women and girls. More information is available at www.occtickets.com or call 714 Four three two five eight eight zero. For this morning, stay tuned to George Rosales. George had a hat, and uh, George, I want to extend you a lovely V Day segue. So, bye for now. Fall in love. Why should we fall in love? Our hearts are made of it. Let's take a chance. Why be afraid of it?